Hosanna, a fellowship of Christians. Good morning. Welcome to Hosanna. If you're joining online, we welcome you. You were smart and stayed home on these wet roads, but those of you who came, you're smart too, because there's nothing like being here together. That's right. Let's, if you're able, you can stand with us. If you'd rather sit, that's fine too, but let's start with a way in a manger this morning. Love came near.
remember what it was like in those days before Jesus came to save the world. And though today we still live in a world marred by sin and suffering, we can find hope in the knowledge that our Lord and his comfort is with us in our suffering. 
that he understands our pain, and that ultimately he has won victory over sin and death. This true Christmas hope is not a flimsy hope that's dependent on the sparkle or lack thereof in our, certain, in our current circumstances. Instead, it's a hope grounded in the assurance of a Savior who came, dwelt among us, and redeemed us from sin, and who will come again to make all things new. And just like the sun rises every morning, we can be assured that even during the longest, uh, the sun is out today, by the way, just can't see it. Just like the sun rises every morning, we can be assured that even during the longest and darkest nights of the year, and in the midst of the most difficult of Christmas seasons, Emmanuel, God with us, is near. May you find hope in the assurance that Jesus Christ's light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it.
I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And we are glad to be here in this community with this family. It is a place of joyful hope, hospitable welcome. It is a place where we turn our microphones on. <laughs> it is a place where together we can wait in wondrous anticipation of the kingdom to come. And Jeff is looking because I saw him on the microphone. So much for the beauty and the formality of that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Let me read that one again for the sake of those online particularly and all of us who are hard of hearing. We are glad to be here in this community with this family. And it is a place of joyful hope, of hospitable welcome. It is a place where we together can wait in wondrous anticipation of the kingdom to come. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up the mountain to the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that God may teach us God's ways, and that we may walk in God's paths. And so, we light an Advent candle today as a sign of our hope, our joyous hope that we can be restored, our faith restored, our strength restored, our confidence restored, our joy restored, as we watch and wait with all of God's people for the promise to be fulfilled. This year, we not only light candles, but we become candles of hope. No, we're not going to light you on fire, but we do invite you to stand and hold out your hands in a motion of hopefulness, like this, to say yes to the hope God wishes to give us all. Let's do that together. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Yes. Each week, we're going to light a different candle, and each week, we're going to teach you a new motion here during this Advent season, so that we not just hear it, but we express it with our bodies. Isn't that cool? Okay, you can be seated. Kelly's going to come and share some announcements with us. Good morning, Hosanna. Good to see everybody. I see the kids leaving. Yep, it's time for you to head on out to KidVenture. Um, welcome to everybody. Welcome to everybody here. It's good to see so many smiling faces and to you with us online today from the coziness of your own home. Uh, welcome. It's good to have everybody here. Um, my name is Kelly. I'm the Director of Children's Ministries, and um, we have quite a bit of announcements today. Before we get to that, though, um, I do want to offer a prayer for our offering that the ushers are ready to take. So if you'll, if you'll pray with me, please. God of hope, we thank you for this day. Um, Really, one day at a time is all we have. And with you with us, we know that you will walk with us through whatever the day may bring. Um, Help us to be your agents of hope this season. Um, There's so many that that need it, Father God, and help us to be a light and and shine your love onto those that, that are in great need and our neighbors and our families and our friends and that we can just bring your love and shine the light on that this season. Please bless these gifts. Allow these gifts to bring hope to people. And uh, we just thank you for the givers as well. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, um, first announcement. We have an adult class going on. That is continuing today. It's called Five Freedoms. And that will be happening today over here to my left in the blue room. So feel free to join that class. 
Also, this Wednesday, the Women's Fellowship Group is going to be meeting at Night and Day Diner for lunch at 1 o'clock. So I know they would be happy to have you there and come and enjoy a good lunch at night and day. You know, in this season of hope, we, I, if I get thinking sometimes, like, what can I do? You know, we do so much for our family and our friends. What can we do for those who, like, really are in need? And there's three opportunities, and there's simple opportunities that we have here at Hosanna that we can give a little bit of ourselves to bring some hope and joy to others this season. Um, the first one is our Change for Change bucket. Uh, for the month of December, the, the uh, money collected in the Change from Change will be going to Water Street Mission. And if you know about Water Street, they um, give people that are in great need, and they minister so well to them, and we can be a small part in that. Our gifts are going to be um, providing care to men and women and children that are experiencing homelessness and that are really some of the most at risk we have in our community. So it's a chance for us to be the hands and feet of God by simply dropping some change in a bucket. So um, if you care to do that, Change for Change is back there. The second opportunity is that next Sunday, we're going to be taking a second offering, and that's going to bless 18 families in our Hosanna community. 18. That's a significant number. And also two families in the community, so 20 families total. That Again, we have the opportunity to drop a a few extra dollars um, in this season that we can bless 20 families. And then also the third opportunity is that you've been hearing about this for the last couple of weeks. Next Sunday is the last day to bring in your wrapped angel tree gifts to bless folks at Rose City Nursing and Rehabilitation. And I see a lot of the tags are gone on the tree. There's still a few left. So let's, let's cover everybody that is in need. And uh, if you want to grab a tag out there, you can bring in your wrapped gift next week. Also next Sunday, something's happening after the service. Anybody know what it might be? Christmas party. Christmas party. It's time to party, right? It's time to uh, have our Christmas party here at Hosanna. And we need to get ready for that. Oh, Tony's dancing up here, so I don't know what to expect. But um, we need you to help break down chairs, if you would, please, after the service today. We need 18 tables brought in. The two in the back will stay. Um, and there will be people here to guide you where to put the chairs. And But we would really relish your help and um, would ask for you if you could stay and help us set that up. And our final announcement today um, has to do with KidVenture. And KidVenture is our children's ministry here at Hosanna. Um, Sometimes if you don't have kids, you might not see what's going on back there. But there's a lot going on, and I want to speak to that a little bit. Um, I wanted to share with you our mission statement. Believe it or not, we have a mission statement for KidVenture. And it states, the purpose of KidVenture's children's ministry at Hosanna is to supplement and support families by providing space, opportunities, and resources for children to encounter Christ, experience his love, and be transformed by that experience. And that is playing out. Every Sunday here at Hosanna, we're guided by um, the um, Micah 6-8 verse, uh, acting justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. And we, uh, we work hard to teach our kids that. Little backstory back before COVID, we had three very functioning classrooms going on. We had a lot of kids. COVID happened, and life changed for all of us. When we returned here to Hosanna, we had one classroom. And that's been the way it's been. And that one classroom held kids ages 3 to 10. So if you don't think that was a challenge, (laughs) it was. Just such a a wide range of ages. But it worked. It worked. And we all worked together with that. I'm really happy to say that now we have reached the point. Our children's ministry has grown once again, and it's time to break the classes apart again. Um, which is a great, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And um, we're having, you know, 
wide age range of kids. So actually last week was our first week that we separated the kids and we have two classrooms going on. We have our explorers, which are, are our three-year-olds to approximately third grade and then our fourth and fifth graders are our pathfinders. And I say approximately because we really try to place the kids in the place they're going to function best. We don't just go strictly by um, ages. So to that end, I need your help. It takes 16 volunteers a month to, um, to run our children's ministries program. And we have a wonderful, um, I'm able to do that right now barely, okay, because some other people have stepped up. But if you have ever thought that you'd like to volunteer for kids ministry, now's the time. And I would love to have you on board with us. Come and talk to me about it. You don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to, if you're, you know, I have some volunteers that say, I don't want to be the lead person. That's okay. But we have two children, or we have two adults in every classroom uh, for our safe church policy. And um, I'd love to have you on board. So please see me. And uh, we're at a critical time right now. We want to keep serving our children. So um, thank you for the time to allow me to say that. And Tony. Thanks so much, Kelly. It, uh, one of the things I love about how Jesus is presented in the Gospels is that he is approachable by children. They want to be with him, and he, he, he defends their right to be with him. And uh, as we become more like him, as we become little Christ, I think perhaps many of us will find that to be the same as well. We become safe and approachable, and that's, that's what Kelly needs, a few people to to be a good presence like that in the room. So that'd be awesome. I heard this week from our friends in Bulgaria, Hadi and Penka Tanasov. We haven't, for those of you who are newer here, you haven't met them yet because we haven't been physically able to have them here since pre-pandemic. Joanne and I were, were in Bulgaria teaching pastors five years ago now. And uh, that's probably the last time anybody has been there. But uh, so Christ Resurrection Church in the City of Kurgely, which is right up against the Turkish border, is our sister congregation. And uh, they were part of our Change for Change. We did a special Christmas offering to them. So he, wanted to, he, want, he wrote me to say thank you to all of you. We sent them $2,000, which is an extraordinary amount. This is what we do now. Instead of making shoeboxes and sending them to them, we send them the money and they make big boxes. So uh, he said with some money they received elsewhere, they got enough, and they went shopping this week. Do we have that? And uh, they're loaded up. They have a truck that will deliver all of that. And they got teams coming in from Ireland and Switzerland. Boy, these guys are connected. <laughs> I tell you, we're going to help them distribute in the coming weeks. And I'm asking them to send us some pics so we can enjoy that as well. They've also, they are artists, the professional artists. They started an art gallery in Kurgely for the community. They've also now started an art school, and they're teaching kids art and Jesus at the same time. So uh, they, he sent us some pictures of that and some beautifully Eastern European art. I love what they're doing. By the way, this uh, cross at the back corner of our auditorium here was made by Hadi and Penka, and they gave it to us a gift. They brought that in at one point. Oh, yes, and Joanne's pointing, we have... Uh, a painting over here, too, of our dandelion with the, uh, the pieces flying. We have other pieces of their art elsewhere in the building and a couple more upstairs that we haven't unveiled yet. They also had some baptisms earlier this fall, and they showed me those pictures because we provided the funds for this baptistry that's in the backyard of their, their, congregate, their, their church there. And I thought you would like to see that that's still in use. We also provided a lot of the funds for their building. 
And they're doing something else that they tried last year. They're offering hot soup to people in their, in their city during the winter months. And he sent me some pictures of that. Bulgaria is the poorest country in Europe. And uh, Kurdishly is a modern city, but it has an awful lot of people in need. And um, they're hoping to meet that need. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, I want to fill you in on that, and hopefully we'll hear a little bit more from them in a few weeks when we see the Christmas gifts. I'm flying solo today because it's a secret. Don't tell anybody, okay? Don't tell anybody it's Joanne's birthday. And whatever you do, don't tell her that I told you. Because we wouldn't want to make a fuss. Happy birthday to you. We, we. <laughs> Joanne just hates it when we, when we make a fuss. And <laughs> anyway, <laughs> happy birthday, Joanne. Let's start this message with a story. Feeling that his life is going nowhere, Carl, who says no to everyone and everything, attends a motivational seminar. I think I actually have a slide on that, but I didn't mark. He's invited by his friend Nick, and the lights dim as video starts on two giants. <laughs> That's for happy birthday. Lights dim as the video starts on two giant screens in the front of this big auditorium, and they say, life, we are all living it. Or are we? Change is generated from consciousness, but where is consciousness generated from? From the external, and how do we control the external with one word? And what is that word? And the crowd knows what the response is, and they scream, yes! And a motivational speaker takes the stage, sending the crowd into a yes frenzy. He says, the word is yes! Yes, yes, yes! Say it a million times! Say it a million more times! And the word you would have said two million times is, and the crowd yells, yes. So I want you to invite yes into your lives because it will RSVP, yes. And then he concludes, when you say yes to things, you embrace the possible. Now, some of you know where that's from. Anybody want to yell it out? That scene is from a movie called Yes Man. (laughs) Starring Jim Carrey as Carl. Carl, after initial reluctance, decides to embrace a life of absolute yes. And of course, since it's a comedy, hilarity ensues. He overdoes his yes. He says yes to everything. He turns it into a rule, and he finds himself snookered and taken advantage of because he, people start asking all sorts of bold and inconvenient requests of him because he won't say no, and they know he won't say no. But in the middle of it all, he also finds himself beginning to live and love as he had always wanted to, but had been afraid to. In the end, we find that despite the exaggerations and the comedy, the motivational speaker was not entirely wrong. Maybe that's why a study last year in Britain revealed that the average person says yes 13 times a day. Did you ever count? And no, only six times a day. That's jolly good. (laughs) And heck, if they can be that positive in a country where it's 
the weather is always like it is <laughs> uh, today, just think of how many yeses we might be able to give here in beautiful America with sunny weather. Truth is, though, it is hard sometimes to say yes. It's hard to make our mouth form that word sometimes, even when our heart, maybe even our head wants to desperately. We say no to many good things in life, and sometimes the best things. And we're going to look today a little bit of why we do that. But let's go to Scripture to try to unpack that. And if we go there, we want to do that, of course. Yes? Well, things get a bit surprising. I was surprised this week. I did not know something here. Well, I mean, I learn something every week, but this was a big one for me. I didn't know that the Old Testament doesn't have a word for yes in it at all. Do a concordance search. I mean, maybe in the English translation you will find one, but it's not there in the Hebrew. Why is that the case? Because the ancient Hebrew didn't have a word for yes. Does that surprise you? Yes. <laughs> Apparently, I did some research, a few other languages are the same thing. Now, the, the, the Hebrews had the concept of yes, even if they didn't have the word. They had other ways of expressing it. So if asked a question and they wanted to reply in the affirmative, they would repeat, this is the way we might word it in grammatical terms, they would turn the interrogative into an indicative. <laughs> that is, they would just repeat back what was said, what was asked of them, as a declaration. So let's practice that with one of the most important questions that you will have to answer today. Okay, here it is. Do you want to eat some pizza after church? <laughs> Mike's got it already. Yes. I want to eat some pizza after That's how you say yes if you're an ancient Hebrew. Okay, that works. It gets a bit clunky after a while. You know, we could end up sounding like Yoda. Eat pizza, I want. Uh, so the Hebrews... <laughs> Ignore the beer can bottle. Okay? It was the best picture of Yoda I could find. <laughs> so, so the Hebrews eventually started using shortcuts. Instead of repeating all the words asked them, and they would reply with only enough to make their meaning clear. So, would you like to eat? Do you want to eat some pizza after church? I want pizza. <laughs> shorter form. The answer is yes. And then eventually they got even a little shorter. So it came something like this. Do you want to eat some pizza after church? Pizza! <laughs> One word was enough. We see some examples of this in the Old Testament. Miriam, Moses' sister, uh, when the princess of Egypt discovers her brother hiding in the bulrushes, she says to the princess, do you want me to go find a wet nurse to take care of the baby? And the Hebrew response is, Go. One word. That's yes. <laughs> I want you to go find that person. Just go is good enough. Or when King David asks anxiously if his newborn child is dead, his servant answers sadly, one word, dead. Kind of blunt that way, isn't it? Kind of direct. Yes, your child is dead. So as you can see, by the time we get to one word answers, we're not too far off from a simple yes at that point. And that's why by the time we get to the New Testament, everything I've been describing is Old Testament. By the time we get to the New Testament, we find that those biblical people who are speaking Aramaic and Greek do have the word yes in their languages. By the way, modern Hebrew, you can say yes. I looked it up. I forget what it is. It starts with an N. Uh, but, so you can do that. But once they got it down to a one-word response, they had a familiar temptation. We know this temptation. 
of saying that word too glibly, being too quick to assent or agree and not really mean what they say. So like I said, we do the same. Yes, I'll do the dishes. They don't get done. Yes, you look wonderful in your new clothes. Yes, I just love Taylor Swift's music. <laughs> this habit became so common that Jesus actually gave a warning about it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, be people of truth. Or as author Marilyn Chandler McIntyre put it, care for words in a culture of lies. This, by the way, is an awesome book. I've had my students read it for the past 10 years and gotten to know Marilyn McIntyre a little bit more recently um, and just express my appreciation for this because you know, we do live in a culture of lies, don't we? Not just the explicit lies that we tell them we're trying to get away with things, but the way that we shade the meaning of things, the way we try to persuade people that we believe in something when we really don't. So caring for truth means caring for how we use our yeses and our noes. Because in the end, the words we use are worthless unless backed up by our actions. And our actions are our truest responses. The Hebrews didn't need the word yes if they lived out their yeses openly and honestly in front of others with their lives. Now, I say all that because we start today a new series of messages for Advent. First Sunday of Advent here. It's December. Get the place decorated for Christmas. We're going to look at some people in the biblical stories that lead up to the birth of Christ, people who were asked some really important questions, sometimes asked to do some really hard things. And we're going to see how they responded and why. We're going to look particularly at the yeses that they gave and where they came from and what the results of those were. And we're going to do this, we're going to go into this series with the assumption that their responses have something to do with our own, that their stories were written down for a reason. You ever think about that? The Bible's not an accidental collection. Those stories are written there for a reason. That their stories are somehow also our stories or connected to our stories in some meaningful way. And therefore, their questions are also our questions. And their yeses are also somehow our yeses, our choices, our own responses. So today's story, a familiar one if you've been in church or know scripture for a while, it's about an older couple named Zachariah and Elizabeth. I love these folks. This is such a fun story. We're told, this is in Luke chapter 1, we're told two things about them right up front. That they're righteous and that they're childless. Now, what's that mean? Righteous, in their context, means that they did the right things and didn't do the wrong things. They were dutiful, obedient, conscientious. Their neighbors and extended family would have called them good folks probably like many of you are considered to be good folks. I look out and I'll say, you know, I, I do that sometimes. Hey, good people, the good people of Hosanna, you're righteous in that sense. We can see it in you. But that raised a question for their neighbors and friends, even for them, even for Zach and Lizzie. Because <laughs> they wanted children and they didn't have them. Now, not having children is sometimes an intentional choice and that's cool. But wanting to have them and not being able to has been a source of grief for many throughout human history. And even more so in the ancient world. They didn't understand biology like we do. <clears throat> People in their culture understood children to be a reward from God. 
So to be deprived of that reward meant some sort of faithlessness to God. It's kind of like when uh, another one of my favorite stories, disciples see a blind man one day as they're walking with Jesus, and they say, who sinned? Was it that guy or was it his parents because he was blind from birth? The assumption is that somebody sinned. The only question was who? And that people treated childless couples sometimes that way. Well, what did you do wrong? And so not having children felt shameful, particularly if you, if you, if, if you know you're righteous. You're doing the right things. You've not rebelled against God in some way. And besides the shame, to be deprived of children in that time meant poverty and old age. Because kids were their parents' social security in those days. If you lived long enough and you were not able to provide for yourself, you relied on your kids. What does Zachariah and Elizabeth do in their old age? Well, maybe there's some charity given by their neighbors or community, but that's the best they can hope for. And it also meant to them the absence of a legacy. Because how is somebody's story told? How is somebody remembered, even for a few generations? It's the stories that are passed down to the kids and the grandkids and the great-grandkids. But if you don't have those, there's nobody left to tell your story. Except maybe your contemporaries who are the same age, who are going at the same time. So that's why there's multiple couples in the Bible who cry out to God for a kid. It was common experience in those days. And some of them who give up hope for one as they move into middle age. And Zachariah and Elizabeth are at that age now. It's too late for them. So they resolve to continue their lives of righteous duty, knowing, however, that they're going to be relatively unnoticed in their lifetime and unremembered afterwards. These are names we should not know. There were millions of people living in 6 BC or 5 BC or whatever the year it was that this story takes place. And almost all of them have been forgotten, even by the historians. We should not know about them. But except for one day they got caught up in God's great plan of redemption, just as we have been, or could be. And they found themselves offered an extraordinary choice, an extraordinary gift, which is why we can talk about them today. The two of them responded to that gift initially, at least in very different ways. So let's start with Zechariah. I mentioned the other day from the children's, uh, a couple weeks ago from children's books, Alexander's Terrible, No Good, Rotten, or whatever. Very bad day. Well, Zachariah had the opposite of that. Man, he had a day one day that just blew everything away in his life. It was the most extraordinary day he'd ever experienced or hoped to experience. Zachariah was a priest. Now, that was a part-time role in those days. There were literally thousands of priests, and they're called up in groups, and he would have done about two weeks of service a year. They drew, and when they got called up, there's about 24 of them at a time, they drew lots to decide who would do what. And on this day, Zechariah finally drew the lot to burn the incense in the holy place of the temple. He would go into that special room, into the presence of God, where only the priests could go. But there were so many priests, and this happened so rarely, that biblical scholars say this would, this would have experienced maybe once in a priest's lifetime. Once in all of his life, he gets to do that thing. And today's the day. He drew the lot. It's his turn. It was a really big deal. As I said, today is the biggest, best day of his life. So Zechariah went in, and he lit the fire in the incense altar. And then he placed the incense on it, opened the top of the container so that the smoke began to rise. 
And it began to fill the room. And the smell of the incense poured out of the openings above the walls. And everyone outside of that room, everybody who's gathered for this worship celebration could also smell it. And that incense wafted its way up into the air. It represented the reason that they did this. It represented their prayers going upward into heaven. It was so thick in the air that that the priest's garments would smell like incense for weeks or months to come after this was over. It was a glorious experience. It had to be. I had a taste of it when I was in Spain a few years ago. The end of my Camino, my pilgrimage, after walking for over a month, there attended a service, a pilgrim service in its cathedral. And one of the things that they did was to swing this giant censer of smoking, that's what they call it, the censer's container of smoking incense through the cathedral. There's a picture of it. You can see it in motion and then what it, what it would have looked like. Swung in wide arcs through the cathedral and the sound of the pipe organ, which was dramatic and the the astonishing beauty of that building and the smell of the incense combined for this glorious center experience of the presence of God. It was awesome. Awesome in a different way than Hosanna is. We don't tend to do the pipe organ and the censer and stuff like that, okay? But there's different kinds. It was just incredible. Not something I had experienced before or since. And that's what Zechariah was doubtless experiencing. He's at the heart of it all when something totally unexpected happened. As if this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity were not enough, an angel appeared to him there in that holy place right beside the altar. And that angel messenger had a message. And this is what it was. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. I love, I love how every time an angel shows up in Scripture, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. Fear not. So get rid of your images of white, fluffy, you know, puppy dog kind of angels or whatever. These things must have been magnificent, but also a bit scary in their magnificence. Hey, hey, calm down, Zachary. Don't be afraid. No heart attacks here. Come, got good, good news. Your prayer has been heard. The prayer that had wafted up from Zachary and Elizabeth, like that incense over the years. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And by the way, take some notes. Got some instructions for you. You are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. Not just you, many others. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And it goes on for a while. Now, I'm not reading all of it to you. <laughs> he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Wow. Holy cow, which is not a Christian phrase. The the timing of this is perfect, isn't it? As I said, this incense represents the prayers of God's people wafting to the very nose of God. And here's an angel from God telling Zechariah that his prayers, the nose of Elizabeth, have been received and heard. The request is granted. Yes. Yes. They will become parents. And better yet, their kid will be an extraordinary guy, filled with the Spirit. He will be a redemptive presence in the world. And Zechariah is even told what to name the kid, John. What? John. That was almost as common a name then as it is now. I know we have some Johns in here. Anyone know what it means? Any of the Johns in here know what it means? Yes? (laughs) It means God is gracious. 
And we know the kid, of course, as a grown-up, John the Baptist, who's sometimes presented as a fierce weirdo. <laughs> I guess he was. But he's the guy who invited people to change their ways and baptized them in the Jordan River as a sign of their saying yes to that invitation. When they did, that's why they got to dunking. And it was a message of gospel. It was a message of hope. Somebody is coming. God is up to something. There's somebody coming after me. He's going to do even better stuff than this. Are you ready? Yes. Be baptized. So how does Zachariah respond? That's 30 years later. Okay, how does Zachariah respond in this moment? What does he say to the angel? Can you imagine a shout of yes forming in his heart and in his mind, forcing its way out of his throat? No. No, what came out was something far less than that. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. We're too old. Our bodies don't do that anymore. And Zachariah feels the need in that moment to educate God on human biology. This is how babies are made, God. And we're not going to be able to meet that that need for you. Now, if this sounds at all familiar, it's similar to how Abraham and Sarah had responded when they were told that they would have a son in their their own senior years. And this was, of course, Abraham and Sarah, they were the progenitors, the founders of the whole people of Israel. So Zechariah knew their story. And when they were told this by visitors, messengers, who came and talked to them, you know what they did? They laughed. Sarah laughed first, Abraham laughed as well. And I, I love the fact that when that baby was born, they named him Laughter. That's what the name Isaac means in Hebrew. They turned the joke back on themselves. That, 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 there's a sense of humor in there. And if I were Zachariah, well, I might laugh as well. Or I might argue as well, like he did. The angel doesn't seem to take too kindly to this response. <laughs> Zachariah's like, hey, human biology is not going to allow what you just said. And the angel responds with, I am Gabriel. <laughs> Let me tell you who I am. He hasn't introduced himself. So for Gabriel was busy in those, those, those couple months there, wasn't he? Wow, he's showing up everywhere. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Gospel. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Wow. Shut up, Zachariah. Basically what he's saying. Seriously? Why is Zachariah seemingly being punished for asking what most of us would regard as a fairly obvious question? I've never quite understood Gabriel's response. I've heard a boatload of sermons over the years, probably preached some myself when I was younger, telling us that the point is to never question God. Never argue with God or we'll suffer the consequences. Go to your room and stay there quiet until I call for you. That kind of response. I think we got to ask, is that really the point here? If so, I think a lot of us, particularly in this room, are in trouble. We do sometimes argue with God, don't we? And it seems like God kind of invites that from the people that he loves and trusts. So I spent quite a bit of time pondering on that this week, and I I, I think I might have a fresh perspective. So let me try it out to you, on you. 
First, let's give Gabriel, let's defend this a little bit. Zechariah is not just pointing out the physical difficulties in what Gabriel is, prom- is promising. He's also demanding proof. How will I know this? How can I be sure of this weirdness? Prove it to me. But if you think of where Zechariah is at that moment, if you think of what day it is in his life, then that question becomes a bit absurd. And how would you like me to prove it to you, Zechariah? Should I send an angel to tell you? An angelic messenger is pretty over-the-top proof, isn't it? Has anyone ever had an angel show up and tell you something? I mean, most people respond to God speaking to them through what? Dreams and visions, whispered in the ear, nudges, just plain hunches that you hope and trust in the Spirit of God. But when you get an angel, I mean, it's kind of hard to beat that for proof, isn't it? I mean, what else would you want, Zachariah? Well, maybe he would want to hear this message in the presence of God himself. So where would be a reassuring place to receive a message from God, Zachariah? How about in the temple? (laughs) How about in the center of the temple, in the holy place, right by the altar? Which, of course, is exactly where Zechariah was. Every Jew that his generation would have considered being there to being in the very presence of God. There's no better place. There's no better proof than being there on that day. So, yes... The point I'm making here is that Zachariah's demand for further proof couldn't, wouldn't be granted because he had already received a full dose. I, I, I didn't research this intensely, but I can't think of anybody else in all of Scripture who got more proof than Zachariah did. I mean, God just loaded it down, loaded it up on him. The only way left to prove it in the end was to borrow from Nike and just do it. To go home to Elizabeth and conceive a child together and to watch their own miracle be born from their own bodies. Jesus, by the way, later said much the same thing to people who wanted him to prove himself. Anyone who chooses to do the will of of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. We learn by doing. We get the proof by doing. We see it happen by doing it. So Gabriel says, no, no, no further proof is required to Zechariah. So be quiet. He wouldn't be able to speak until John was born. I don't think he could hear either. Because later in the story, his neighbors are using some kind of sign language to communicate with him. No sound coming in, no sound coming out. But what is, what is the name of that son of his again? John. God is gracious. So what if there's grace, not punishment, in the silence that falls upon Zechariah? See, now there is a good question to ask. After all, a lot of God's good work happens in silence, doesn't it? In the silent dawn of creation, in the soft whispers of prayer, in the quiet of the womb. And perhaps the very best thing to do when in the presence of such holy love is to shut up which is maybe why Habakkuk, the prophet, admonished us to do that. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And Zechariah would have known that scripture. And there he is on this day. He's with the Lord in his holy temple. But instead of amazed silence and the glory of all of that, 
he's busy chattering on about how wrong God is about how babies are made. So I suspect the invitation to his good Zechariah, he's a good man, is to move his righteousness, his goodness from the outside to the inside of his life. To not just be a man of duty to the external obligations of his faith, that was the trap the Pharisees kept getting caught in, but to now also become a man of deep inner trust in the goodness of that God. That's why I put, we pointed out many times here, the word that's in the New Testament is often translated belief would be better translated as trust. And it's caused a lot of damage over the years because people have assumed that believing something means assenting to it with your mind rather than trusting it with your heart. And that's the invitation of that, that, that biblical word, pistos. Trust it. And I think Zachariah is getting that invitation here now. He's done the externals. He's done them all his life. He's done them well. He's a good man. But in this moment when he's being promised everything he's wanted, he doesn't trust the goodness of God. And the silence might help him do that. It can be a gift to him. But to do that, he's going to have to sit with this experience, to ponder it in his heart like Mary, and to get to better know this gracious God. And it's not just for his own sake that he needs to do that. That boy named John, who's not even conceived yet, he's going to need to know about that God too, not just a God of external rules and obligations, but the God of graciousness, the God of goodness, the God you can trust, the God in which you can put your hope, because that's going to be the mission of his own life, to call back people back into relationship with the God who loves them already. John's going to give people hope that God is involved in their lives and in their world, that God is up to something good, the same kind of hope that God was now offering his parents. And at this moment, Zachariah is not yet prepared to believe that, to trust that, to celebrate that. So God gives him a nine-month lab experiment in silent hope. Maybe not a bad thing for a number of others of us, right? Well, back to the story. People in the temple are probably wondering what's going on by now. Zachariah's been in there a really long time. And okay, you've never done this before, but it doesn't take that long just to light the incense. He finally emerges, probably a bit pale in the face, maybe shaking, unable to say a word in response to their anxious questions. He finishes work. Zachariah is a dutiful man. He just had this experience. He finishes his work, and then he goes home. Scripture doesn't tell us how Elizabeth reacted when he arrived home speechless. Probably took a while and some help of others before this story could be told. And then what? They acted with hope. Against all odds, Zachariah and Elizabeth made love and conceived a child. And she cried out. He could not. She cried out with thanksgiving. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and he has taken away my disgrace among the people and shame that I have felt. God has taken it away. And I imagine that this prayer of thanksgiving went on much longer than all of that. There was a smile on her face that people have not seen in decades. This is where Elizabeth is different than Zachariah, it seems. 
and maybe gives us an alternative way to respond to the goodness that God offers us. He's offered a good thing in response, perhaps like many of us, with cynicism, confusion, critique. It's not, it's not a yes. Not a yes man, not yet. Not entirely a no, but it's a, I'm, I'm not sure I can buy into this. But Elizabeth, she's offered a good thing and she receives it with gladness. Yes, yes, Lord, amen. This is what I've wanted all these years. Bring it on. And this is cool. She not only receives it for herself, but is able to recognize it and celebrate it in others. Because while she's still pregnant, she gets a visit from her younger relative. You guys know this story. Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country, Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped at her womb, and Elizabeth, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you ever notice that last line before? I, I, gotta, I gotta admit, I've never really paid much attention to it. The angel had told Zechariah that their son John would be filled with the Holy Spirit while in the womb, long before Pentecost, when the Spirit came to dwell with the people of Christ permanently. But we see here that his mother received that Spirit too, and the implication is that the baby and the mother are being filled with the Spirit at the same time. Why? Why? Why does that happen then? Because the spirit that fills her soul that day is the spirit of hope. And what happened to her was not just for her, but soon would become a gift of goodness to all who would receive it. It's the way Paul worded it to the Romans several decades later. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, as you believe, as you trust, not just believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Overflow. That's Elizabeth's experience now. That's what John is going to give evidence of. That's what Jesus is going to do. That's what's going to happen to the disciples in the day of Pentecost. Overflow with hope. The God of hope will fill you. That spirit of hope that we who are in Christ have within us can fill us with that. Because we who have met Christ know that hope is not just a thing. It's not just hoping in a thing either. This is not a message about hang on there, God will eventually give you what it is that you think you want in your life. That doesn't always happen. That's not the point of it. Hope is not the thing. Hope is a person. And what we hope for most deeply in the end is not a thing either. I just said it. We hope in the character and goodness of God who truly does give us the deepest desire of our heart which is and has always been him. The hope of their lives, the hope of the entire world, lived with Zachariah and Elizabeth in their home for months. He lived in the womb of their cousin Mary. Christ himself dwelt among them. He didn't come out and have conversations with them yet. He was there. And in the end, that was their greatest hope. Elizabeth, who carried her hope within her own womb, she got it. At least at some level, she got it. Zachariah, not so much, at least at first. So how about us? Have you and I allowed the God of hope to fill us with himself? 
Are we overflowing with hope? Would people describe you that way? Would they call you good? But would they also call you a person who is hopeful? I'd suggest that's a rare thing in the world these days. And sadly, it's a rare thing among God's people. Sometimes God's people are the most pessimistic of all, and I can't understand that if we have the spirit of hope within us. So if we are not filled with hope, why not? I suspect there's a number of reasons we do not always say yes to hope, yes to God's goodness. A number of reasons why we, like Zachariah, quibble and argue with God when he shows up with our heart's desire. One is that we don't recognize it as such. We often settle, we've said this so many times, we often settle for tiny pleasures when God is offering us deep fulfillment. Please, can I have this? Well, I actually, I want to give you all of this. No, please, please, I really want this. And you're not giving me this, so I'm going, to have a, I'm, you know, I'm going to have a snit. One of my favorite phrases for decades now has been, the greatest hindrance to the best is the good. It's not that we're always choosing bad things. Choices between good and bad are relatively easy. Zachariah usually choose, chose good things. But he almost missed out on the best thing that ever happened to him. By putting his hand up and saying, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. He wasn't able to recognize it as best. Another reason we don't often say yes to hope is sometimes it seems too good to be true. Maybe we tried hope before and ended up being scammed, like Jim Carrey's character was, or feeling foolish. And so we're skittish about trusting someone else again, even God. I love the fact that God honors that and recognizes that and hangs in there and waits for us to come to that experience of hope and proves himself trustworthy. Or maybe we don't trust ourselves with it. I mean, how many of us have been limited in life, not living out our life to the fullest, not becoming what it is that we know somewhere deep in our souls that we were intended to become, not living out this relationship with God in the fullness that we were invited to by our assistance that I'm not good enough. And that's a lie that has got to quit among the people of God. There's been so much bad religion being thrust upon people, telling them they're not good enough, when God all along is given the opposite invitation. I already love you. I already trust you. I already invite you. Would you now live, please? Come awake. Come alive. We've got to get rid of that lie among us. Or maybe we don't say yes to hope, because then we have to give up our old story. And we all have one. I have mine. Maybe you have a story where you say, I don't have to take responsibility for my life because I'm a permanent victim. And I can blame everybody else or blame God for who I am and what I do. Or maybe it's an old story where I'm the responsible one. <laughs> can I go on with this one for a while? I might identify with this one. <laughs> and must take care of everyone and everything else. And so good things only happen to those people and never to me. You guys all have a nice time where we're in a hundred acre wood. <laughs> I'm Eeyore, and I'm going to sit here and just take care of things. This is Martha when Jesus comes to visit. There's food to be made. Come on, Mary. Uh, or the old story that I am better than the rest of all you idiots out there. <laughs> and I don't need anyone's help. Thank you very much, much less God's. You're probably not sitting here in a worship service if you are feeling that one. 
But if we nurture these old false stories, they're going to keep, they're going to keep trying to talk us out of saying yes to hope and yes to life and yes to love. There are more stories than that, but those are examples. So these are some of the reasons, probably, certainly not all, that we find ourselves like Zachariah sometimes and not like Elizabeth. We're holding back. We're giving God the hand. Talk to the hand. I'm not ready to go there. But we can move on, right? We can move past our no and learn to embrace yes, right? Zechariah did. When his son was born, Zechariah could speak again. (laughs) And he now, too, had a boisterous, joyful yes to shout. And Scripture records this yes. It goes on longer than this. But it's praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. What I love about Zechariah is that he recognized after nine months of silence that what was happening to him and Elizabeth was not just for them. It was God doing something for their world. For the people of Israel, he could see that he was part of a bigger picture. And he's saying to them, our hope in God has not been in vain. God has done what he said he would do. And then this is really cool. Zechariah looks at his only begotten son, and he speaks gently to him. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Why? Because of the tender mercy of our God. And that is why when others tried to name the child after himself, very common in that culture, Zachariah insisted, no, there is the first necessary no in this story. No, my son is John. Because indeed, God is gracious. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. At this point, we have that same invitation today that Zachariah and Elizabeth had to see what's kept us back from saying yes to hope, from receiving the goodness that God is offering us this very day in this holy place, in this temple, which is the body of Christ, from the messengers of God, who are, of course, each other. You're angels today, and so am I, saying to each other some version of that same story, shush, be quiet. God is here, and God is gracious. God comes with a gift. Will you receive it? Will you open your hands and receive it? And what do you say when you hear God asking you that? The word is yes. Say it with me. Yes. 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 Say it a million times. Say it a million times, more times. And the word you will have said two million times is? Yes. Yes. So I want you to invite yes into your lives because it will RSVP. Yes. And when you say yes to things, you embrace the possible. When you embrace, when you say yes to God, you embrace his hope. When you say yes to God, you start to live. And all God's people said, yes and amen. Team leaders. Yeah, let's stand. Here we go. I see.
yes to you and with your own yes to him rising in your in your in your in your voice today blessings amen, amen.